Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy, the host of Theana Money. This week on the podcast, because my daughter was just born, I'm just dropping an episode that's a sermon I preached probably about a month ago on Romans 13, the first four verses. A lot of people have objections with Romans 13 and what it does and does not mean for Christians, especially the last two or three years. And so I think the sermon would be helpful and uh, is related in a lot of ways to Christianity in our life as it relates to government. And thus it's related to theonomy, maybe not so much related to economics on the first four verses, but I'm planning on with the next episode to release my sermon on verses five through seven. And that one will get a lot more into economics. And so, yeah, I hope you all enjoy this episode. I started recording this sermon after the scripture had been read. So I want to go ahead and read the first four verses of Romans 13 for you right here, reading in the Legacy Standard Bible. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist have been appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists that authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of that authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword in vain. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So let's jump in. So a question a lot of people ask, especially as Christians, do we have to obey the government and everything it tells us to do as long as they aren't saying like you can't evangelize or some other, you know, explicitly sinful thing they're commanding us to do? Because some Christians would cite, Romans 13.1 here and say, basically, as long as the government is not explicitly telling you to sin, you have to do whatever they say, more or less. And so Paul here writes in this more or less primary passage of scripture on this topic in Romans 13, and it really addresses this concept of whether or not you have to do like everything the government says. So that's why it's a very hotly debated passage, especially in the last two and a half years. And so as we're looking at it, uh, first I want to say the connection to chapter 12. Paul doesn't like break off where he was, but he actually continues on from chapter 12 here. That's why I read the last handful of verses to see the connection. There's a lot of people that they look at the beginning of Romans 13 and they think, uh, oh, Paul kind of just randomly jumps subjects. And it almost seems like Paul didn't actually write this passage. Someone else added it in later. I don't really understand how people get that. Uh, To me, it seems pretty clear the connection between the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13. At the end of chapter 12, Paul is saying, don't get your own revenge, but leave it to God. 
leave it revenge to God. God will get vengeance, as he quotes in verse 19 from the Old Testament. And, of course, God gets his own vengeance in the final judgment. In the final judgment, everyone who has not cast themselves upon Christ and had their sin forgiven by the gospel will experience God's final judgment as their sin is judged and they are cast into eternity in the lake of fire. But in chapter 13, Paul actually talks about another form of God's judgment here and now, a judgment that does not have to wait until the final judgment. And that is done by God's servants, the government or the civil magistrate, to use a term I like a little bit better. And that as we will see, especially in verses 3 and 4, the civil magistrate is the one that, if it is operating properly, should carry out God's wrath on criminals. Now, there are things you can do to sin against other people that aren't crimes, so that would not be under the purview of the civil magistrate. That would more be under the purview of the church. But here and now, there are many crimes that a government operating properly should punish. And in that sense, there is a way in which that crime is punished both now and if that person does not become a Christian in the final judgment in the future. And so that's the connection to uh, chapters 12 and 13 to one another, that basically don't get your own revenge because God will get his own perfect vengeance as a holy God. And if the government is operating properly, he does that with criminals here and now by the government in verse 4, it bears the sword as the minister of God. And so... This passage is very often uh, misapplied and abused by people. So today we're not going to do, we're, we're going to do something a little bit different. Instead of walking through every single verse in depth and looking at what it says and drawing application, I'm going to try to go through the verses today, verses 1 through 4. We're going to say 5 through 7 for next week. Verses 1 through 4 today a little bit faster than normal. And then we're going to look at how some people, in my opinion, misapply these verses and then we're going to try to look at them a, a little bit better. And so the first verse, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. So every person, that means everyone. A lot of times when Paul says stuff or any other biblical author says stuff, they're talking specifically to Christians. But here Paul pretty clearly says every person. Some translations like the KJV say every soul, which is probably actually a little bit closer to the Greek, but person and soul are kind of capturing the same idea here. And it says to be in subjection to, so to uh, submit to, to obey. There's a correlation here in, with Paul in Romans 13 and the citizen's responsibility to uh, the government and what Paul says in Ephesians 5 about wives to their husbands. And then the governing authorities, some translations say the higher powers, Higher powers might be a little bit more literal to the Greek, but governing authorities is more or less what it means. So that's a better way to translate it so we understand it. This means what I called a minute ago the civil magistrate, your congressmen, your, whether the House of Representatives or senators, just the congressmen in general, your governors, your presidents, and other countries, their prime ministers, the kings, whatever other term of some kind of political elected position you want to put in there or even uh, in countries that have uh, less elections, uh, even more stricter countries that would have dictators, still a governing authority. And so Paul says that this authority here comes from God. There is no authority except from God. And God has all authority, so if anyone has any authority, it 
had to come from God. He is the source of all authority. And then Paul goes on to say, those which exist have been appointed by God. So God is sovereign, amen? If God is sovereign, there can't be someone in some kind of position that God didn't ordain for them to be there because otherwise that would be outside of God's sovereignty. And we know nothing is outside of God's sovereignty. So every elected position, whether we're talking about a world leader or the treasurer of your freshman class at a small high school, that position is ordained by God. That person has been appointed by God. So take any president in American history, the ones you really like, the ones you really don't, and all the other ones that you kind of just forget about, all of them have been appointed by God. And now that, um, you know, that of course makes sense because God is sovereign over everything, like I said, but that also doesn't mean that every single civil magistrate of any country ever has a 100% stamp of approval from God. Just because they are appointed by God does not mean God approves of everything every ruler does. Um, so, for example, sometimes if a nation is being wicked, God brings wicked rulers in order to judge that nation. Uh, back during the 2016 election, I saw a picture going around, and it was a quote from John Calvin, and it said, uh, uh, when God, it was this quote from John Calvin, it said, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. And then it had a picture of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton because they were the two running against each other for the 2016 campaign. And then going on into the second verse, therefore, whoever resists that authority has opposed the ordinance of God. So by resisting the authority that has been put in place by God, you are resisting uh, the person representing God. And uh, those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So think about it this way. If the United States ambassador to the United Kingdom, if uh, when he's over there, if the UK disrespects that ambassador, it is as if they are disrespecting the uh, US as a whole because, um, sorry, if the United Kingdom, I got that backwards, the, United, the US ambassador to the United Kingdom disrespects the UK's prime minister, then you know, either way, basically, the US ambassador is representing our country as a whole, good or bad. If he's a bad ambassador, if he disrespects the prime minister, disrespects uh, now the king, since Elizabeth II died, I forget the new king's name. Um, if he does something bad as the United States ambassador to the UK, it will reflect poorly on the entire country. If he does something really poorly, then uh, of course the United States might have repercussions for him when he gets back here. Uh, but it also says in this verse, those who resist against uh, um, those who resist will bring condemnation upon themselves. So condemnation means judgment. Uh, there's a kind of twofold sense it could mean here. It could mean one, those who resist the civil magistrate will receive condemnation upon themselves as in the civil magistrate punishes them for breaking laws. But also it can mean a condemnation by God in eternity because you are resisting the person who is uh, basically co-reigning as God, this person reigning underneath God as his minister. And in that latter sense, condemnation and damnation would be more or less synonymous terms. A lot of times in the Bible, they're used synonymously, I think, a lot of times, if you look at the KJV, it'll say damnation. If you look at the, e, the ESV, NASB, etc., newer translations say condemnation, I think just because newer translations don't want to use the mean-sounding word damnation sometimes. But basically, that's what it's saying there. So 
A quote from John Calvin, that guy I mentioned a minute ago, he says on this passage, as no one can resist God but to his own ruin, he threatens, Paul threatens, that they shall not be unpunished who in this respect oppose the providence of God. And so going on to the third verse, it says, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. So the rulers, the civil magistrates, they should not make us afraid for doing good. They should make us afraid when we are doing evil. You should not be afraid of what our government will do to you if you are doing what is good. You should only be afraid of what the government's going to do to you to punish you if you're doing evil. Uh, at the end of the verse, it says, Do you want to have no fear of that authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. So the government should praise us, not condemn us, for being good citizens. If we are being obedient to God's word, if we are doing what is right in God's eyes, we should have praise from the government, not judgment from them, not punishment from them, because uh, the same thing that is right in God's eyes, the same thing that's right in our eyes, if we're obeying the Bible, it should be the same thing that is right in the eyes of the civil magistrate. So if you are, say, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, going door to door talking about pro-life, and uh, you really shouldn't have to worry about if you're, uh, while you're going door to door to these houses, that the person who lives in one of the houses shoots you in the shoulder. And you shouldn't have to worry that, you know, that should happen because one, people should be afraid that if they do something like that, the government will punish them for it. And then even if that still happened, you shouldn't have to worry that the guy could do something like admit to doing it and still not be charged because you should uh, assume the government will punish someone for doing something like that. By the way, I use that specific example because it actually happened recently. A woman in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area, older 80-something-year-old woman, was going door-to-door -door trying to get, like, I don't know, giving out flyers or getting names for a petition or something related to pro, the pro-life movement. A guy shot her in the shoulder, admitted, he admitted that he did it, and still, as far as I've heard, has not been charged with any crime for shooting an 80-year-old woman merely for being pro-life. So the government should be a cause of fear for evil behavior, like with this guy that they, as last I heard a few days ago, still have not charged with any crime. And then the uh, verse 4, the last verse we'll look at today. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword in vain. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath, on the one who practices evil. So the government is to be a minister of God or a servant of God to its citizens good, not for evil. Servants and ministers obey their master's rules, their master's commands, their master's law. Governments are to obey God by having rules and laws that are in accord with God's word, in accord with God's Old Testament law because it's where a lot of God's rules for nations come from. God doesn't focus too much on rules for nations in the New Testament. He pretty well got that covered in the Old Testament, and Jesus affirmed it in the Sermon on the Mount. And so there are a lot of other places in Scripture that kind of uphold that same idea, but I don't want to go to other places. I want to be in the one we're in today. Maybe in coming months and years, we will occasionally hit on one of those other passages, but basically Romans 13, Psalm 2, other passages teach that the civil magistrate should have rules and laws that are in accord with God's rules and laws in Scripture. 
not to contradict it. If they didn't, where else would you get your standard of law from if not from God's word? At that point, you're just making up your own sense of law, which basically just means whatever, uh, whatever crazy idea anyone can have as long as it gets a majority vote, it wins. So God's law, God's word should be our standard for things like this. And so if you're an evildoer, if you are a criminal, then according to this verse, you should be afraid. Why should you be, should you be afraid? Because Paul says the government does not bear the sword in vain. The sword refers to the punishment of criminals. The fullest sense of the word sword here would be execution, capital punishment. But it doesn't just mean specifically that. It means any form of uh, punishment, any form of judgment. That you steal something from someone and your punishment is you have to give them twice the value of what you stole back. Which would be, by the way, a much more biblical concept than you go to jail and the person you stole from never gets their stuff back. That doesn't make anyone better off. Um, but whether it's that or whether it is capital punishment for a far more crazy crime than stealing some money from someone, then uh, the government is the one that bears the sword. It doesn't bear the sword in vain. It doesn't just hold up the sword to look scary and try to get people to uh, do what is good for fear of the sword, although that is one purpose of the sword, is to keep people from doing crime for fear of the punishment but it is to also actually punish those who, despite fear of the sword, do the crime anyways. But Paul doesn't just stop there. He says, the civil magistrate is a minister of God. It is an avenger who brings wrath on the one who does evil. So in this manner, the government is an avenger who brings God's wrath here and now on the evildoer before God in the final judgment brings his wrath on all evildoers which is every human without exception, all who have not been forgiven of their sin by God's grace through the gospel by their repentance and faith. And so once again, this is the connection between chapter 12 and chapter 13 here. That, uh, you know, chapter 12 says, don't get your own revenge, leave it up to the wrath of God. But chapter 13 says, civil magistrates, governments should be bearing wrath, bearing the sword on those who commit crime here and now. So there is a sense in which they are punishing evil here and now before God punishes all evil not forgiven in the gospel at the final judgment. And so looking at those four verses, there are a lot of ways that they, especially the first one or two, can be abused and have been abused in the last several years. Uh, people will say, Paul said all of this in Romans 13 during Nero's reign. And if you read anything about Nero, he was a, he was a Caesar of Rome in the, the 60s of the first century. And the guy was crazy. He did all this horrible stuff like he would uh, use Christians still alive as candles in his garden. He would light people alive and use them to light his garden. He would, uh, different ways he would torture Christians. He would... Uh, he would dress up in an animal skin to pretend he was an animal and then kill Christians by biting their genitals off. All kinds of crazy things. And so they say, you know, we look at Nero. He's like, you know, as corrupt as some world leaders are today, like none of them can even touch Nero. So there are people who say, if Paul wrote this during Nero's reign, how much more should we do whatever our government says now? Because they're not as bad as Nero. But actually, if we look at the timeline, the first three or four years of Nero's reign, he was actually a pretty good Caesar. It kind of seems like 
about three or four years in, the guy just kind of went crazy. Um, now, I think looking back at world history, we can see some of those things were under the surface, even the first few years. But as far as any citizen could tell, looking at Nero, looking at the surface of things, he actually looked like a really good Caesar for the first three or four years of his reign. And it was during those three or four years of Nero's reign at the beginning that Paul wrote Romans. So Paul was writing Romans, not when Nero was walking around his garden being lit by Christians being burned alive for the faith. He was saying this when Nero actually kind of looked like a humanitarian Caesar, at least compared to the ones who had been before him. But then Christians will also just basically quote the first half of Romans 13.1 and then more or less just ignore the rest of the verse. They'll say, if the government tells you to wear a mask, you have to do it. If the government tells you to take an mRNA vaccine, even though never before in world history has one made it past the animal trials, then you have to do it because Romans 13 says you have to do whatever the government says. They'll say if the government tells you your church has to be closed down for several months, but abortion mills and strip clubs can still be open, you just have to abide by it, Romans 13. They'll tell you if the government tells you to do pretty much anything, no matter how crazy, as long as it's not explicitly sinful, you have to do it. They'll say, you know, as long as it's not explicitly sinful, whatever the government says, if the government tells you there's a new law, every Tuesday you have to wear a clown suit. And if you go outside of your house on Tuesdays without wearing clown suits, you can go to prison for it. They just say, well, it's not sinful to wear clown suits on Tuesday, so I guess I have to do it because Romans 13. They'll say, by the way, this, one, this next one is an actual example from someone, that if the government says you have to put pinwheels on your head to go to Publix, guys from the South, for us it'd be Kroger. If, they, if you have to wear pinwheels on your head to go to Publix or Kroger, that you have to do it because it's not sinful to wear pinwheels on your head when you go to the grocery store. But newsflash, the government isn't God. God didn't remove all of his authority and give it all to the government. God didn't step off of his throne and put the government there instead so that way they can make all of their own rules. The government can overstep its bounds by giving rules, by making laws that do not explicitly command sin but are still above and beyond what a government should do. But yet, this, these things I just said, these crazy examples of things pretty much all of them, things people have actually said, is how some people understand Romans 13. And they can sound really compelling when they do it, because all you have to do is cite the first half of verse 1, and it's like, well, look, it's right there in the Bible. Well, yeah, but let's not just read half of a verse and build an entire theology off of it. Let's, for starters, read the entire chapter and see if what you're saying this one verse means actually contradicts what two verses later means. Because if you're saying that, you're misunderstanding the one verse. Scripture doesn't contradict itself. Also, even like Paul, you know, we, Paul wrote other letters besides what was in the Scripture. So if we had one of Paul's letters that's not Scripture, I'm pretty sure Paul would be smart enough to not contradict what he's saying two sentences later. So we have to make sure we are understanding this properly. It's a lot more complicated than just the Bible says we have to obey, so we have to obey. Well, the Bible also says a lot of things that what the government has to do. So is the government doing what it's supposed to do? Or maybe to um, help the person see the, his or her inconsistency when they say that, we could say, well, uh, does a wife have to submit to her abusive husband in everything? Because Ephesians 5.22, Paul says, same Paul who wrote Romans 13, Paul says the wife has to submit. 
And uh, you know, that's just the end of it. Wife has to submit whatever's going on. As long as he isn't commanding her to do something sinful, wife has to submit. And when you say that to the person, they're probably going to respond, well, yeah, but like five verses later, it says the husband has to love his wife. And like, she doesn't have to undergo abuse just because Paul says she has to submit. I'm like, hold on a second, hold on a second. Let's be consistent with your standard of Romans 13. You say Romans 13.1 says we have to submit to the government and everything that's not explicitly sinful. So if you're going to be consistent, you have to say Ephesians 5 says the wife has to submit to her husband even if he's abusive as long as he's not telling her to do something sinful. We can't have mixed weights and measures. If our understanding of Romans 13 with citizens to the government contradicts our understanding of Ephesians 5 with wives to husbands, we're misunderstanding one or both passages because they do not contradict each other. If there is any difference, it's that Ephesians 5, in Ephesians 5, wives have more, or husbands have more authority than the government does in Romans 13, not the other way around. And of course, we don't actually believe that before someone like tries to take a YouTube clip of this and try to make me out to be this horrible person. I'm not really saying the wife has to obey her abusive husband and everything. I'm just saying that to point out the inconsistency of people that would abuse Romans 13 to more or less say that same thing about government. And so, though I say that, it's a blasphemy both to secularists who basically make the government their God or to Christians that just say Romans 13.1 really loudly and ignore the rest of the chapter. And so that's a little bit of the way this passage has been abused by certain people to say things it doesn't actually say. But let's also try to get a little bit of a better understanding of it. Look at verse 4. The last verse we looked at, it says that the government is a minister of God. By the way, that word minister there in Greek is the word diakonos. If that sounds kind of familiar, that's because that's where the term deacon comes from. Like, Eddie is one of the deacons here at New Hope. That word deacon means servant or minister, and we just transliterated that Greek word diakonos to get our English word deacon. And so, now, by the way, that's not saying that any politician is like a, on par with a deacon in the church. There's a difference between church and government. They're not the same. There is a distinction between them. But it is to say that both should be understood as servants or ministers of God, which is why twice in verse 4 that word minister is used. It's used near the beginning to say the government is the minister of God to us for good. It's used near the end of the verse to say, the government is a minister of God as an avenger on criminals. And then between those two uses of the word minister, it says that the government is the bearer of the sword. The like I said, going through verse 4, the government bears that sword on criminals. Or drop down to verse 6, a verse we'll look at, Lord willing, next week. It says, rulers are servants of God. And that word servants there is actually a different word in Greek than the word translated minister in verse 4. But it helps show the point that governments should be submitted to God. It's not that churches do the spiritual stuff and governments do the secular stuff and act as if God doesn't exist. Church and state are separate things, but they are both separate things under God. There is a difference between church and state. There is a separation of church and state, but there is not a separation of God and state which is, by the way, what Thomas Jefferson was saying when he wrote the very thing people cite for separation of church and state. That's not in our Constitution. It's in a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote in response to the Dan Danbury Baptists, and he never intended for there to be a complete separation of God and state, 
just that church and state are separate institutions. We didn't want to make the mistakes that the United Kingdom did, well, Britain at the time, that Britain did with the Anglican Church, where the state and the Anglican Church are at times blurring the lines between each other. We wanted to have a biblical distinction, but at the same time still have a Christian government. That's why in some states in the early days of America, you had to be a Trinitarian Christian to be a public office, to be a politician. You had to not only be a Christian, but you had to not be a heretic. You had to believe in the Trinity to hold public office in some states in the early days of America. Thomas Jefferson himself, who wasn't even a Christian, upheld Sabbatarian laws, basically meaning businesses could not be open on Sunday unless it was an emergency. Thomas Jefferson, though he wasn't a Christian himself, did not believe in this hard separation of God and state that some people hold to today. But anyways, I'm getting too far off of Romans 13. I want to read a couple of things from a declaration called the Warrington Declaration that talks about these themes. This was a declaration that some men wrote, many of them pastors, wrote a year, maybe two years ago. Uh, some of the guys that helped write it or were early signers of the document are actually some friends of mine. And so in section one uh, on authority, article 14, the Warrington Declaration states, we deny that the only reason one may lawfully disobey an authority is if they are commanded to sin by that authority. And then in section five, or sorry, section one, article five, the declaration says, we affirm that the scriptural jurisdictional limits of delegated human authority are also established by good and necessary consequence, given that various offices are said in scripture to be required to be obeyed in everything. The sense in which in everything is used in these verses cannot mean that obedience is obligated for all commands, regardless of their morality, since scripture also teaches Christian disobedience to sinful or abusive commands. There it gives an example in Acts and one in Exodus. In everything also cannot mean that obedience is obligatory to all non-sinful commands, since scripture also teaches multiple offices of human authority. These offices may at times conflict, thus requiring Christians to consider which authority is acting within their rightful jurisdiction to determine if obedience is required. Thus, commands to obey in everything must refer to the obligation of Christians to obey all non-sinful commands of true authorities, which are also within the proper jurisdiction of the authority giving the command. So basically what that's saying in a lot of technical language is Christians are to obey non-sinful commands of authorities as long as they are operating in their proper jurisdiction. There are three types of government. We really went into this about a year ago. There is the family, the church, and the state, and each one has different roles and responsibilities. If the family steps outside its role and starts taking on the roles of the church or the state, then it is wrong. If the church does the same thing with the family or the state, it's wrong. And if the state does the same thing with the family or the church, it's wrong. And so what this is basically saying is that we are not commanded by Scripture to obey when, when any one of these three authorities, the family, the church, or the state, goes beyond its uh, proper role. If the church takes to itself the roles of the government and the church starts trying to pass laws as if it was Congress, you know, if whatever the biggest church in the country is, started passing laws like it was Congress itself, we wouldn't have to obey those laws because church isn't Congress. 
we know that. I'm pretty sure very few people would actually believe that was the case. But when it goes the other way, when the government starts doing things that are within the bounds of the church, not the state, we think we now have to obey because Romans 13. But that's not what Romans 13 is saying. And so basically rulers must also obey God's law, God's word, and their ruling. Um, remember the U.S. ambassador to the U.K. example. I said if he does a bad job being the U.S. ambassador to the U.K., he makes us look really bad to the United Kingdom. There are going to be consequences for him when he returns to the U.S., just like the rulers, the civil magistrates, as servants of God. There are consequences for the politicians before God if they rule in unjust ways and make God look unjust because they should be re representing him. And so what do we do when the servant, when the minister, when the deacon of God, the government, rejects God? Well, some people would say, oh, that's when you just start a revolution. But that is not the case. Uh, Christians are not revolutionaries. The French Revolution was an atheistic, secular revolution. At the very least, secular, if not full-blown atheistic. It was not a Christian thing. So Christians strive for reformation. We strive for reformation. We strive for reforming the system and making it better. We don't strive for never revolution, outright rebellion, outright resistance only when necessary, never revolution, and first priority is always reformation. That's when you petition the magistrates that are in place, emails, uh, calls, in-person visits, things like that, or running for political office yourself as a Christian, or telling those who are in office of their duty before God to obey him and to obey his commands, obey God's commands and their commands and decrees as uh, ministers. A current example is uh, with a, uh, a Jewish university in New York. They are fighting over, they have various clubs at their university, and the, this LGBTQ group wanted to start a club, and the school, being a Jewish school, said no. Now, disclaimer, I'm not giving, like, say, I'm not saying Jews are okay in salvation, for Jews to become saved, they have to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, that their Tanakh, or what we call the Old Testament, points to. As long as they, like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, reject Jesus as the Messiah, they're not Christians. But uh, either way, it still works as a good example. The government basically said, uh, you're discriminating against the LGBTQ by not letting them have their own club, even though it goes against everything you stand for as a Jewish university. And so you have to let them have a club. And the school responded by saying, okay, we're just not going to have any clubs at all. No one can have a club then, because then the LGBTQ group still can't have a club. I think a Christian university, properly obeying Romans 13, what they should have done there is say, uh, no government, we're Christians. We have like dozens of verses in the Bible to tell us why we, by good and necessary consequences of Scripture, should not have an, a group celebrating sinful things like the LGBTQ movement and so you as the government can't tell us our Christian college has to celebrate sinful things. And so therefore, we're just going to not let them have their club. In fact, the kids that wanted to start it might end up getting expelled and everyone else can still have their clubs and I'll see you in court. I think that's what a Christian university should have done there. Although I do have some respect to the Jewish school for basically saying, okay, then no one can have clubs so that way we're not disobeying you. Uh, but... That's one way to do a more outright form of resistance. Another one is called the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. 
Basically what this means is that when a higher magistrate, maybe think federal level, does something sinful, that a lower magistrate, maybe state level, or if the state level is the one doing the bad thing, then the local level, should try to resist it to protect his people. And so this would be um, if the, uh, someone in, in D.C. is trying to do something evil, but you have a really good governor, or maybe in your town you have a really good mayor, and you, under the authority of your mayor or your governor or your county commissioner or whoever it is, you are under his authority as he is on your behalf resisting against the higher authority trying to command what is evil. A first century example of this was when the Caesar tried to put up a, an idol in Judea, or maybe it was in Galilee, and somewhere in Israel in the first century. And the more or less governor of that region basically said, uh, the Caesar can kill me for doing this, but I'm going to tell him I'm not doing this because I understand you as Jews. Dude wasn't even a Jew. He just said, I understand you as Jews view this as like a breaking of one of your Ten Commandments. I'm not going to do this, even though my boss, the Caesar, can kill me for doing it. And so he put his life on the line for the religious liberty of those under his stead. And uh, luckily for him, that Caesar ended up getting assassinated before he could have been killed, so his life was spared. Um, but yeah. Also, when it comes to talking about things like this, it's actually a lot easier for us in the U.S. than it is for people in other countries because of two Latin words, lex rex. Uh, basically, what lex rex means is the law is king. So in the U.S., we don't have a king or a queen like in the United Kingdom. In the U.S., though, in a sense, we do have a king. The Constitution is the king of the U.S. The highest authority in the United States is the Constitution. For good or for bad, I'm not saying the Constitution is perfect. It's not inspired by God. There are ways the Constitution could have been made better. But for good or for bad, the Constitution is the ultimate authority of America, which means if a mayor, a governor, Congress, the president, whoever, goes against the Constitution, that you, by disobeying that person in order to obey the Constitution, are actually obeying the highest authority in the land. If your governor contradicts the Constitution and you obey the Constitution rather than the governor, you are obeying the highest authority in the land and therefore you are being obedient to Romans 13. Because you're saying, no governor, the Constitution rules America, not you. You are not allowed to contradict it unless we go through the process of amending the Constitution in D.C., which in this specific instance hasn't happened yet. So that makes it a lot easier for us in the U.S. than other people that do not have a similar system like us to the Constitution. Or the United Kingdom that has a quote-unquote unwritten Constitution or something like that, they call it that makes it a lot harder because you can't point to and quote something that's not written down. Uh, and so I want to read a little bit from the Warrington Declaration again. Or, since I use a lot of technical terminology, I'll just summarize it. The Warrington Declaration, when it comes to these things the government tells us to do, that it does not have the proper authority from God to do it, they don't say we as Christians are basically commanded by God to disobey. They say there are many reasons you may want to obey something the government says to you you have to do, that isn't sinful, but the government shouldn't be telling you by biblical cases that, it, that, they, that you should do this. They say you might obey anyways for several reasons. One of them would be that uh, um, the consequences of not obeying are pretty bad. Uh, I will get into next week because verses 5, 6, and 7 talk about taxes. 
I think any tax rate of 10% or, un, or higher is unbiblical, but we still pay our taxes because we don't want to go to jail. <coughs> that would fall under the Warrington Declaration saying there are some instances where there is an unjust law made, but it's not sinful to obey it, so you obey it anyways because the consequences of not obeying it are too severe. Or because compliance with that is expedient. That, that's the word they use, it's good. Um, I think seatbelts are a good thing. I think it goes beyond what the government should do to mandate us to wear seatbelts. But whether or not there was a law on seatbelts, I would wear one anyways, because 95% of the time in a car accident, you are safer having worn a seatbelt than not. I actually know one guy whose life was saved because he wasn't wearing a seatbelt in a car accident. A piece of shrapnel would have hit him in the head. But that's like one out of a thousand cases that happens. Most of the time you're safer wearing a seatbelt. So do I think we should wear seatbelts? Yes. Do I think the government should make us? No. But I still think we should wear one whether or not the government is telling us we have to. And then the third example they give in the declaration is sometimes you obey the law in an overly exaggerated manner, basically just to show how ridiculous it is. Um, and so I guess in conclusion with all of this on Romans 13 is first and foremost, the government is not God. The family, the church, and the state are three different spheres of authority, are three different forms of government all underneath God, but neither one of them is on the same level as God. They are all underneath him. God did not step off his throne and give all of his authority to the government. So governments must obey God, just as the father as head of the family must obey God, just as the pastors as heads of the church must obey God. So the civil magistrates as heads of the government must also obey God. They are to rule in accord with God's word. So since civil magistrates are to rule in accord with God's word, I guess we can say Christian nationalism is a good thing, not a bad thing, as long as we define it rightly. There are some people that define it really bad. So Christians should and must submit to governments that rule well and honor God, and we should be as submissive as possible to even those governments that do not. And with that, let's close in prayer. God, thank you for today, and thank you for how you have blessed us. May we glorify you with our time today, honor you, love you, and serve you. Help us to properly understand your word and how to obey you in uh, matters of uh, the Christian relationship to the government. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Satisfies me, your love is sweet, oh you.